where we are going to be actually looking at every account of the crucifixion here tonight. We're going to be looking at one part in particular. The um, Well, that's coming through a funny, funny spot. <laughs> Somehow that's, that's being picked up. No, I think it's being picked up by one of the um, one of the channels somehow. Uh, I would be looking at probably on the third panel, the first column. It might be um, might be over in there. But Matthew twenty-seven is where we're going to spend a lot of our time. Now we all know what it's like to go against public opinion, or what is the popular and acceptable thing to do. How many know that here and today we've, we've had a lot of popular things, a lot of acceptable things, and people have been ostracized, people have been put down because they're not going along with the common thing, with the, the, the group think, what's going on. And you can imagine that on the day of the crucifixion that there was a lot of people who were not in line with the masses, with the majority. There was a lot of people who were not wanting to crucify Jesus. There was a number of people who didn't feel that Jesus was deserving of death. We even know that Pilate was in among those, those folks. But there was a lot of pressure being put on. No, this is the direction we have to go. We have to be angry at what Jesus has done. We have to be angry at what Jesus has, has uh, stated. No, this is the direction we have to go. We have to be angry at what Jesus has done. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where that's all coming from, but we'll, they'll figure it out. And we will, we will get that to, uh, to not go. There's a, a lesser known figure, at least uh, he's, he's well known actually, but just not focused on a whole lot. And we're going to spend some time taking a look at Joseph of Arimathea. He's kind of the uh, third Joseph that people know about. We all know about Joseph's father. We know about Joseph in the Old Testament. We don't spend a whole lot of time on Joseph of Arimathea. But, of course, he was from Arimathea. Historically, if you go into the history, he was actually first known as Joseph de Marmore, which is actually from where he lived in Egypt before he moved to Arimathea. Now, there is speculation that Joseph of Arimathea is also the same Joseph of Glastonbury. So he actually became known by three things. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea is how we know him, and that's how he was known in the Word of God. He is thought to be, and there seems to be some evidence, that he was the uncle of Mary, mother of Jesus. The relationship uh, to Mary would have made him a great uncle. It would seem that he would have been born about seven or eight years prior to Jesus being born. Now, of course, they married a lot younger in those days. So if Mary married in her young teens, then this would probably be a, um, one of the younger uncles that she would have in that, in that family. But it's still very, very possible for that to have, to have been. Uh, can't say for sure that he was a relative of Jesus. There does seem to be some things written in history that seems to indicate that he was. Now, the Greek word for Arimathea, as we have it here in the, in the Matthew, and, or just all four Gospels recorded as that, 
it is uh, translated, it means heights. The word Arimathea is of the Hebrew origin and is uh, transliterated as Rama. How many remember that from the Old Testament? It means the name Rama, one of which is the birthplace of Samuel. Of course, him we all know. The Thayer's Greek lexicon states that Joseph of Arimathea was likely from Mount Ephraim, which is the same place where Samuel was born. So it's very possible that they had the same hometown. He had decided early on in his life that he was going to study all three sects of the Jewish nation. He started with the Pharisees. He went on to, that was the chiefest of the groups there. He went on to the second, which was the Sadducees. And then the third, the Essenes. He decided he wanted to get an understanding of all three and then make his decision as to which one he thought was right. And he settled on the Pharisees. And so he became a Pharisee. There are a lot of legends with this man. I'm going to read some of these to you. Um, some of them really seem far out there, but I'll just let you know what some of the things that are going on with, with Joseph here. He is in the, there's a number of apocryphal books that do cover him. The Gospel of Peter says that he was a friend of, of Jesus and of Pilate. In the apocryphal Gospel of Nicodemus, uh, he says that the Jews imprisoned Joseph after Jesus' burial, but he is released by the risen Lord, thus becoming the first witness of the resurrection. I would have thought there would have been some record of that in the, in the Gospels, if that actually was the case. It is said in one of the accounts that he was entrusted with the Holy Grail of the Last Supper. Now, this is the part that uh, gets into a little, little crazier aspects of it. Uh, it was said that he actually collected some of the blood of Jesus in the cup and took the cup to Glastonbury, where he is the patron saint. He was head of 12 missionaries that were dispatched there by Philip, the apostle. While he was there, it's, it is said that he took the Holy Grail with the blood in it and buried it in a well, or hid it, I should say, in a well there. That particular well yields water that has a red tint to it. That may be what gave uh, idea to the, to the legend. It runs about 25,000 gallons of water a day, all of which has a red tint. The reason for the red tint is the well has a lot of iron, and the water comes out with a, with a very high concentration of iron, and that gives it the, the red tint, not anything from blood in, the, <laughs> in a cup. But he has, uh, he's been said to have built a church there, I don't think I'm going to get this pronunciation right. Vetusta Ecclesia. It was basically made of mud and wattle. I don't even know what wattle is. But uh, it doesn't sound like it was that great of a, of a church. He decreed that 12 monks should always reside there. And he, uh, as far as we know, as far as we, in recorded history, he may have built the very first church. This is the very first church that we have recorded that was, was made. And uh, if you think the legends have been kind of crazy so far, here's the crazier one. 
And that is from the Glastonbury Thorn. Has anyone ever heard of the Glastonbury Thorn? I didn't think anyone probably would. It is, for, it is a form of a common hawthorn found in the area of Glastonbury, Somerset, England. Unlike ordinary hawthorn trees, it blooms only twice a year. It happens to bloom at Christmas and Easter. That is the only time that it, uh, that it goes on and does that. So, <clears throat> what happened with it, this is where the, the legend really gets kind of crazy. He was sent up there with these missionaries to go to this Glastonbury. And as he got over into the Glastonbury area, uh, he was very, very tired. And he took his staff that he had, which was made from, uh, it's supposed to have been, Again, this is legend. Legends can get really weird. It was supposed to have been made from some of the uh, crown of thorns that was on Jesus. And so when he had stuck that in the ground, when he was tired, he stuck his staff in the ground at the top of the hill as he was approaching the town just to rest. And as he did, it is said that the, the, um, the shaft took root into the ground almost immediately. And grew this particular thorn, which apparently is not the natural thorn that what, uh, comes here. It's more of a uh, Eastern Mediterranean thorn. This is a picture of it. Of it. Now, this is not the picture of the original thorn the tree that grew. What happened to the original thorn tree that grew was there was. Um, let's see if I can find the. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to have that. Uh, there was the original one that, that had grown and had come up was actually burned by some um, some of the rebels that had come over and, and uh, taken over the area one time. They were they saw it as uh, heresy and they wanted it gone and they they took it and they burned it. Another one was planted there, and I believe that one was in around 1953. They had planted another one in the same area. And that one was, all the branches were cut off by vandals in the year 2010. Every year at Christmas, they take one of the blooming uh, branches and, oh, where do they take it to? I had it. They take it over to the, um, nope, I, I'm not finding it right now. There's a church there, Church of St. John. The Church of St. John has these particular trees growing outside, and they cut some of the branches off, and they bring that inside. There's also one of the dignitaries that uh, they get this. Now, when Joseph of Arimathea arrived here in Britain, he is attributed with bringing the gospel to Britain. And that this is actually the pathway that the gospel of Britain came was, was through this. Philip gave him the, the orders to go into the, Brit- into the Britain area, and so he took 12 people with him, and they were all going up there to, do, to bring the uh, gospel message there. There does seem to be some truth that he brought the gospel there because of uh, the uh, entrenched area that he has. Uh, his name is, is very much a part of that. Now, here's some things that were really kind of way out on this, and this is that Joseph of Arimathea, being a, a possible relative of Jesus, what he did was... He was a part of his his uh, thing with his money. 
how he made the money, he was involved in tin and other metals trade. And Britain was very much a big part of this. And that is probably why he had the um, relationship with Britain and why Philip decided he was the best guy to go because he had some contacts in the area already. It is said that when Jesus was little, this is all legend, there is nothing in the Bible about this. When Jesus was little, that he took young Jesus on some of his trips to Britain, into India, and there was a third country that he had gone to, and that Jesus had accompanied him on some of these trips. Nothing in the Word about that. If you ever hear anything about that, this is where it came from. Uh, you would think that there would have been some mention of it somewhere. Jesus would have mentioned it. The thing to some of the disciples, they probably would have written it down. So I think that is more uh, legend than fact. But we do know this, that Joseph of Arimathea died at the age of 40, uh, sorry, 86 years old after spending 42 years of ministering in Glastonbury once he had, uh, had arrived there. Let's go over here to the Word of God and see what it has to say. Matthew 27, 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. The man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. So we know that he had become a disciple of Jesus. He did not become a disciple of Jesus at the time. He had become a disciple of Jesus. So he has been a disciple of Jesus, but apparently he doesn't want this known. Remember somebody else in the Bible who was going to be a disciple of Jesus, but didn't necessarily want to come out and tell everybody. John nineteen thirty eight reads this about it. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. So secretly for fear of the Jews. This is the reason that he's secret about it. He is afraid of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. He's afraid of some of the other Pharisees and maybe even some of the Sadducees and some of the other religious rulers. He, is, uh, he has a fear about what they will do if they find out that he is a disciple of Jesus. So he became a disciple of Jesus, but secret. He's not letting anybody know about it. Have you ever felt like you have a set of beliefs about God that you cannot reveal to people around you? That why... I believe this, but I'm not going to say it. If you get up in a bunch of Christians and they're all talking about healing's not for today, the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today, and you feel differently, have you ever felt pressure to, well, I believe that, but I'm just not going to say anything about it. I just don't know this is the best, the best time. This is kind of what Joseph of Arimathea is going through. He doesn't believe the same way that the Pharisees are. He doesn't believe the same way that they're talking about in these meetings. Uh, when they're trying to question Jesus, when they're trying to press him, when they're challenging him, he doesn't feel the same way. But he's keeping it secret. He doesn't feel like this is the opportunity to do it. This is the time to do it. He has a fear of the Jews. It doesn't say it was secretly because of the plan of God. It says secretly for fear of the Jews. So we know why. So... He's coming to Pilate and he is asking to take the body of Christ. Now, one of the legends about this is that he is a friend of Pilate. Having built that friendship, he may be, may be using that friendship to get here into to this. He is not part of the council. The council has not sent him. 
but he may be letting Pilate think he is. That could very much be a part of, of when he comes there. He may not say, I'm from the council. Pilate may assume he's from the council, and he may let him. Have you ever let people assume that have assumed something about you? Let them continue on making that assumption, even though you didn't tell them. I didn't tell them to make that assumption. This, this may be what's going on here. But uh, he asked Pilate for permission to take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gives him permission. Now there was the Pharisees who wanted to crucify Jesus. Pilate didn't want to do it. It was the Pharisees who did. And this, this is a Pharisee. So why not give the body to him? Now he's, he's a secret disciple. He has secret beliefs. He's not letting the, the group here know. So he approaches Pilate. How many of you probably want to think that he wants to keep this thing secret too? I'd rather not have everybody know about this. Now it is said of a crucifixion that the oldest male relative was responsible for the body. That is apparently something that had going on that if you were crucified in uh, Judea, the oldest male relative was responsible for uh, taking care of the body. And with his father, Joseph, being out of the picture, probably dead. And if he was a relative, it probably would have fallen to him. He may have been the oldest male relative. And so he probably could have gotten by with, well, you know, he was crucified. I'm the oldest male relative. I have to step in. If he was a male relative, or if he was a relative at all, that could have been something that would have helped his cause. Now, Mark chapter 15, verse 42 says this. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day. How many know what preparation day is? All right. We've read over a number of times. Preparation day is a day that they made to get ready for Sabbath. Because they made, this is nothing, nothing about this in the Bible. There is no biblical preparation day. This has simply come up because the Pharisees had made so many laws regarding the Sabbath going on so that you could get your preparations done and everyone was ready so that you could endure all the rules and regulations that were put upon you because of the Sabbath. So it was called the preparation day. So Jesus is crucified on the preparation day. Keep that in mind. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, he's not just a member, folks, he is a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Wait, see that? He's waiting for the kingdom of God. He's not alone. There's other people in the Pharisees that are waiting for the kingdom of God. He's waiting for the kingdom of God, but he believes in Jesus, so he is seeing that Jesus may be the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. The other Pharisees, except for Nicodemus, the other Pharisees are not in that, in that camp. They're not in that way of thinking, as far as we can tell. But Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of, of Jesus. He's been a secret disciple. And now we've got this situation. Jesus' body is up there. What happens if nobody comes and takes care of that body? They take all the bodies that are on the, cruci on the, um, on the crosses and they throw him into a common grave. Jesus would have been thrown into a common grave. It's very possible that that could have happened. 
He does not want that to happen. So he steps up and he says, We're going to, uh, I'll do this. He had to take courage. He's trying to be secret. He's in fear of the Jews. What are they going to do if I come here and take the body of Christ? And so he takes courage, it says, here in Mark's Gospel. He went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 50 and 51, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of Jews, of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. He did not consent. Now, when you say he did not consent, that does not mean he aggressively uh, disagreed with them. He just didn't consent. It may just be he said, well, guys, that's not scriptural for us to do this. We don't have a scriptural foundation to crucify him. He may just have been saying some general things along. That's not a good thing to do. We should not go in this way. He may have been arguing this way. He probably is not trying to say something. This is the Son of God and you all cannot. He's probably not doing that. He's still trying to stay as secret as he can, but he just didn't consent to it. They're all, let's have a vote. How many are in favor? And all these people, they said, they said, yes. Uh, Joseph, you didn't raise up your hand. You didn't say anything yet. No, I'm not in agreement with this. Now that took some courage to do that. I don't think he came right out and tried to battle them, but he does not consent. So he has been trying to be a secret disciple all this time, but this day things are changing. And he has to make a decision here. Do I just go along with everybody? Or do I make some kind of a stand? So he decides the stand I'm going to make is I am not going to consent to this. Now that puts them on the radar. What do you mean, Joseph? You're not, you don't think this is the right way to go? Well, no, I think when this, how I'm reading scripture that we shouldn't be going in the way of death for, for what, this is, what this is doing. He may just try and argue it that way. Uh, but I'm sure that he's still got some sly looks. Have you ever not consented to a prevailing thought in a family discussion? Prevailing thought in the school lecture? Or a work setting? You can feel the pressure, can't you? I'm not going to consent, but you may not aggressively disagree. But you just, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, we're just going to be on different pages with this, but you don't throw out all the things that you know because you don't think it's going to be received or whatever might reason that you had there. Now we know from other accounts of disciples that they don't always rise up to defend or stand by what they believe, do they? How many of the 12 disciples stood up for what they believed? John. That is it. Now they all ran off. John does come back. And he stands there at the foot of the cross. That was tough. Everybody knew he was a follower. Here he is by the foot of the cross. He's with Mary, all the, the ladies. They all, they all came out. But um, many of the disciples, they, they left. Peter decided to follow at a distance. And when people said, you were with, you were with one of him, uh-uh, nope, not me. <laughs> he, he's, just, he's feeling the pressure. There's a lot of pressure that's going on here in this situation. And some of them have, uh, have given in. Understand this, just because some Christians have given in to pressure, does not mean they stop being disciples. 
Just be careful how you, how you speak to them, how you look at them. Just because they gave in to pressure doesn't mean they stopped being a disciple. Now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep you from doing some things. There's a time that you need to, to stand up. And Peter and John and James, and they all came to a time when they had to stand up, including Joseph. There's a time he had to stand up. In Mark 15, 45, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So when he first came, we only know from Mark that there was any kind of a hesitancy from Pilate. All the other accounts we just see, he came and asked, and Pilate said, yeah, go ahead. But here in this account, Mark's account, we find out, no, um, we need to find out what's going on. Now, everybody knows where Mark got his gospel from? Peter. Where was Peter when all this is going on? <laughs> he's out in the courtyard. He's within eyeshot of Jesus, so he's probably able to hear some of the things that were that were going on. Maybe he was still in the courtyard. Maybe he still tried to, to come on back over here and he overheard this. Don't know if he heard this directly or if he was told this, this part of it. But this is the, uh, this is the gospel that it makes it in for. So he's uh, wondering if he's going to be, if he's been, if he's already dead. It's a short time. Because it usually takes longer. The crucifixion took two to three days. Full crucifixion took two to three days for a person to die. It was a grueling death. And it was uh, quite agonizing. Um, we can go over all the, all the things. I know some of the details. I haven't refreshed myself enough for a while. But uh, for the most of the time that they were up there, they would take their, their legs and they would push with their legs up so that they could get a breath. The way position they were hanging, they couldn't breathe. And so you'd push with your legs up to get a breath. And then you'd, you'd sag back down again. And then you have to push your legs up. And so what they would do is, if they wanted to speed it up, is they'd go over and they'd break the legs so they can't push up. Once you broke the legs, it wouldn't be much long, you know, minutes. And then they would be dead because they couldn't push up anymore. And when they came to Jesus to break the legs, and the only reason they were going to break the legs is because the Sabbath was the next day and the Jews don't want people on the crosses on the Sabbath. You've got to get them off the cross. So Sabbath is coming. We've got to get this, speed this thing up. So we'll go over and we'll break the legs. The Romans don't want to break the legs. They want to see you suffer for two or three days. He came to Jesus. He's already dead. So they don't break his bones. The reason he was already dead is not because he was a weaker man. He had gone through more before the crucifixion than any others had gone through. And was already in bad shape before they even nailed him to the cross. So Pilate was, a, was a marveled that he was already dead. And so when he sent the centurion, he confirmed with it, said, all right, well, if he's already dead, then you can go. Now, this is the centurion who confirmed that he was dead. His life was on the line. This is the centurion who knows people. He knows when people are dead. He's dead. He comes to Pilate and he says, he's, he's not alive anymore. All right, you can go over there and you can take care of him. Now, some may teach that Jesus was on the cross longer than a few hours. Don't believe him. Pilate's reaction will tell you that he was, he was on there for a few hours. He was kind of uh, surprised at how short a time he was on there. So now they're going to wrap the body up. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-nine. Then when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, 
which he had hewn out of the rock and rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Now, how many of you ever tried to uh, wrap up a full-grown man by yourself? He did not do this by himself. Most of the gospel accounts have him doing this by himself. He did not do this by himself. We have one gospel account that lets us know, I think one, maybe two, that uh, let us know he didn't do this by himself. He had help. And you need help because you've got to take the linen stuff and you're wrapping it around that body. And so he's basically completely encased. It's not like you wrap each arm and each leg. You wrap the body. Everything is wrapped together. And then you just lay them down. You put the spices and all the things in between the layers of the wrapping. And you wrap and you wrap and you wrap and you put a lot of weight. I believe uh, one, one uh, Nicodemus, I believe, brought 100 pounds of spices. I don't know what everybody else brought. But you're wrapping in to this body 100 pounds of Nicodemus spice, whatever it is that he all brought, and then all the others. And you're wrapped so that your, your body is together. And then you're put into the, into the tomb. And so this is what they did. They did it hastily. Of course, the, the Sabbath is coming. So they laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. In Luke twenty-three fifty-two, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. The day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. This was the day of preparation again. Now, as we said, he had help in this task. It looks like he had Nicodemus and two of the Marys that were with him. John nineteen thirty-eight, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So he's got some other people that are coming in and are helping. Uh, Luke twenty-three fifty-five has something very interesting here. The woman had come with him from Galilee, followed after, and they said, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. In Mark fifteen forty-seven, it reads it this way: And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses uh, observed where he was laid. This word here, observed, is the same in both of these accounts. It is the Greek word that means to intensely behold, to consider, or to look look on. Theoreo. Vines has it this way. It is used the one who looks at a thing with interest and for a purpose, usually indicating the careful observation of details. Bring this home so you understand it. Have you ever been to a viewing? When you go to the viewing, they have the open casket that is there. And then people come up and they, they look in. They look in at the casket and they look at the dead person that is there with intent because this is more than likely the last time I'm going to see the body of this person and so there's an intention that is there to be this is what this word is, is used for this word is used other places in the New Testament when you uh, when, when people were seeing 
Jesus for the first time when he was resurrected. This is the word that is used. Can you imagine seeing a dead person risen? Would you just look at them like he's, you know, you just saw somebody in the grocery store. Oh, hey, how you doing? I mean, you saw them. No, would you, you would. Jesus, is that, you're looking intent. You're you're studying the details. Who who is this? You remember when Jesus made the teaching? He says, "You all, you uh, you do things to be seen of men." This is what the word is. The exact same word is used there. You're doing things so that people will take note of what you're doing, and with interest, with intent, look upon it. Look at what they're. Look at how much money they're given. Look at what they are doing for the kingdom. This is what this word means. When it says these women, they came and they saw Jesus, they looked at him carefully. They looked at him with intent. They looked at him thinking this might be one of the last times we get to see Jesus. And they took note of where he was and how he was laid on the, in the tomb. I got some pictures of this tomb. How many people have ever seen pictures of the, of the tomb? There's actually uh, at least two different places, two different sites that they consider to be possibilities. If you ever listen to, to Rick Renner, Rick Renner is convinced that this is the one, and um, he does a lot of historical work on it. Uh, so we, if we go with this, this is uh, the, the, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, very, very well-known church. If you pull up our, our uh, pictures of that, this is the, uh, that monstrosity there in the center is the tomb. And they put this, they built this uh, thing on the outside of it. It had actually, uh, what happened with this is the, the Muslims had taken over the area and they so hated everything with Jesus that they actually built one of their mosques over the area and they took the tomb and they sealed it off in, by, the, by the mosque. And so it was in a sealed area. And so no one could come to it. No one could see it. What they actually ended up doing was preserving it. And so when, uh, when the, I forget who it was who came along after that. I think it was Constantine who came along after that. Uh, they, uh, his mom, of course, was going on. She was Christianizing everything. And so she wanted to Christianize this. So she took the... Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't a mosque. It wasn't a, a mosque. It was the... Um, it was a temple to either Diana or Artemis. It was one of those temples that was, it was built there. And so she came on in and she said, tear it down. And so they tore down the temple. When they tore it down, they discovered the tomb. And so they built this holy sepulcher over the, term, over the tomb. And I believe it had been rebuilt again. I did have those dates and, uh, and all the stuff I was doing on the history of this. I... I've lost the, the date in mind, but they have uh, they've redone this. And just recently, in like in the last uh, couple of decades, they went through and they re-excavated. And I uh, pull up our next our next picture, and they actually went through and they um, they were trying to rebuild some of the areas in there to look like what they were because they had you know it's been a lot of years. That is the slab on which they believe. At least the area, if it's not the original slab, it's at least the area that Jesus' body would have been laid on. We have one more picture that you can see. And, and that's just another shot of the same, same slab where they would have laid the body of Jesus on, the, on what was hewn out by Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea had this thing made and never did get to use it. 
far as we know, only one person used it, and that was for three days. There's a lot of work to do for three days. Joseph of Arimathea didn't do it. He was uh, not buried here. Joseph was buried up in, in Britain, over by the uh, uh, places where he was ministering to. And so that, you can actually go there, and you can see his, uh, his tomb. And I don't know if they call him Joseph of Arimathea, or if they go by his uh, newer name. But anyway, this is what it had looked like. If you want, you can go through and take a look at some YouTube videos, and they'll take you through some tours. I went through a couple of them, and most of them were pretty boring. They were going over a whole lot of ceremony, and there's about three different sects of groups of people that have ceremonies in there at the same time. <laughs> While this is going on, they, they have a procedure they do when they open up the tomb for tourists. Uh, it's, it's interesting. If you want to go through and take a look at that, you, you can. More than likely, I, I'm told, at least from people that I um, trust, that this is the site and not necessarily the garden tomb that they have in the uh, other location. Now, it said in verse 62, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests in the in Matthew, the gospel, the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. I want you to notice this, this scripture, verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation. What is that day? That is the Sabbath. The Sabbath that these very people have instituted many laws to make sure that you don't do so many things. They are on the Sabbath. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. How is that lawful? It was okay for them to go to Pilate, have a meeting with them, set up a guard, get on over there and take care of the seal. Hmm. I don't know about that. Now look at verse 63, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. There's some things in here that you're not quite seeing in the scripture, but they had to have happened. This is the Sabbath. This is the day you're not supposed to do any work. This is the day you're not supposed to lift certain things. You're not even supposed to get water for uh, animals and just, just ridiculous things. Of course, they would make the laws. You can only go so far for a meal unless there was, unless there was a meal. I think it was 100 yards or something like that. And so what they would do in their preparation day is they would prepare meals at different places if they had to make a trip across town so they could get there. They'd come over here and have the meal, 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 and then they made it. These are the same people who did this. Now, you have to get over there to the tomb. They're, they're afraid the disciples are going to come by and steal the body. The disciples do not have to come by and steal the body on the third day. What day did the disciples have to come by and steal the body? On the days before. Now, this is the day after the preparation day. Preparation day. How long has Jesus been in there? Probably at least 12 hours. After Joseph of Arimathea put him in there with all the spices, wrapped them all up, they took the stone and they rolled it, rolled it back, right? So when the Pharisees 
come with their guard, what do they come to the tomb to see? They come to see a tomb with a stone rolled across. A big stone rolled across. If you are one of the guards that are going to be charged with guarding the body of Jesus, what do you want to make sure of? That the body is in there. So guess what happens to the stone on the Sabbath day? They roll the stone away and the Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, gaze inside the tomb and observe the same thing that they had observed before, the body of a very beat up person who was pronounced dead, laying perfectly still on a slab of wood, wrapped up with cloth and weighed down with pounds and pounds of spices. And he has not moved. He cannot get up from that location and go about doing anything and then wrap himself back up. So when they open the, the stone, they look inside. This is after probably about 12 hours and they make another judgment upon that Jesus is still dead. Guards, they see that. He's, he's in there. All right. We will stand guard. They roll the stone back over and then they take a seal and they put it on. Now, if you're wondering how do they seal a stone, they take the, the pilot's signet seal and they put a wax coating on the stone and they put a wax coating on the, uh, on the door and they put a string between the two so that if you move the stone, you break the, the string. You don't have to break the string. You pull the string out of the wax. That's all it is. You can't reseal that with the signet ring because you don't have the signet. You don't have that, that seal to be able to mark that hot wax again with it. That's the only way that you can seal it with that is if you have that actual signet there. So this way is going to make sure that stone does not move without us knowing about it. So there you stand guard. And they're there, and they make sure that that stone does not go anywhere. That's amazing that the Pharisees could justify doing all this and when, it, when it goes against their principles. Our principles are you can't do any work on the Sabbath. They came to Jesus. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That's work. Come on the other days and be healed. They're passionate about this. There's many times that people are passionate about things, and they will set aside their principles to engage their passions. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They will set aside their principles to engage their passions. If you have principles that are built on the Word of God, you will never have to set aside your passions as long as they also are built from the Word of God. Passions are different from principles. But if you build both from the Word of God, you'll never have to let your passions go to fulfill your principles or your principles go to fulfill your passions. You'll be able to keep that going on. The disciples... I'm sorry, the Pharisees weren't able to do this. There are many, many Christians that are passionate over principled people and they will forego their principles because their passions have been enacted. And those passions, their principles may have been built from the Word, but their passions may not be. Now, whatever Joseph was trying to keep secret, it's not secret anymore. 
Understand, they came to Pilate the next day. Maybe he was hoping that this wouldn't happen. Maybe he didn't foresee this happening. But the Pharisees come to Pilate and they say, we want to make sure that the body doesn't go anywhere. Well, your guy took him. What guy? And he would be identified right there in the meeting. You mean our guy Joseph of Arimathea came and took the body? If they didn't know it then, they know it now. And guess where they go to? The tomb that is owned by Joseph of Arimathea. That's where he's at. So if Joseph of Arimathea was trying to do this secretly, it's now out in the open. And the very people that he feared knowing are the people who now know he was the guy. So they're all gathered at Joseph's tomb. When they look inside, they see the care that Joseph of Arimathea took with the body. What's that tell them? He, he put a lot of care. This guy is not just thrown into the tomb. This guy was placed in here with some care. There was a lot of things done wrapping him up and putting the, the spices on. This is done by somebody who cares about this man. The very possibility that he was locked up after this is, to, to me, a very strong one because the Pharisees would not have been happy with this. Now, we look at this. What can we learn from this whole thing? First off, don't follow the crowd. You won't stop being a disciple, but you can't make a stand for God or his word if you follow the crowd. Don't follow the crowd. Now, if you've ever fallen short of what you think you should have defended the gospel, don't get under condemnation. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you can think of times in your life where the gospel came up, something came up that was God, and you didn't feel like you could stand up to it. You didn't feel like you could make that stand and you didn't. And sometimes it comes back to haunt you and you say, why didn't you make that stand? Why didn't you say that? Why didn't you do that? Don't get under condemnation of it. Joseph of Arimathea apparently had an awful lot of times where he didn't feel like he could stand up. Peter had times he didn't feel like he could stand up. James had times he didn't feel he could stand up. And the list goes on. But they did eventually stand up. Others have done the exact same thing. They overcame their fears to rise up when the occasion demanded. They may not have been ready, but they got themselves ready. And just like Joseph, they became well known for what they did. Now Joseph became a lot of things that people despised who were Christians, who were followers of Jesus. He became rich. Many of the Jews despised rich people. But he became rich. He built a rich man's tomb. Can you just hear the Christian people saying, how many people could you have fed instead of building that tomb? Can't you just hear the people saying that? I mean, if they said that about Jesus with the, with the uh, uh, ointment that was poured on him, the anointing oil that was put on him, how much more do you think this cost to, to hew this out of stone? You saw how big that thing was. That took some work. I had, he had to pay a lot of people to get that thing done. How many people could you have fed doing that? He probably took some abuse, just like some ministers take abuse today. Why do you need your own airplane? Why do you need a building that big? Why do you need whatever it might be? He became rich. He built a rich man's tomb. And he became a Pharisee. These are not popular things for people that were believers. The Pharisees were the enemy. Why do you want to do this? But you see, he felt a leading on the inside. It would seem 
to follow after these things, and he didn't squash the truth that was in him in doing so. And when he saw the truth in Jesus, he gravitated to it, and he became a disciple, but he's inside with a group of people. We can't go after this. I don't know if I can, if I can say all these things, and if he had, he may not have been in a position to do the things that he was supposed to do. Now, look at this. Scripture says something in here in Isaiah 53 and 9. I didn't tell Daryl to get this one. So I'm just going to read this here for you. But you can write it down, Isaiah 53 and 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Do you know it was predicted by the prophets that he'd be buried with the rich? That when Joseph of Arimathea was commissioning that grave to be hollowed out, he had no idea he is hollowing it out for the Savior. No idea he was doing it. But he felt like, hey, you know what? I just, I need, to, I need to do this. He's a young man at the time that he's doing this and he's not going to die until he's 86 years old. He's a young man when he's commissioning this and he has this thing uh, taken care of. He's 40 years old at this point, when, somewhere around 40 years old when Jesus dies and the thing had already been done. He was, he's probably in his 30s, maybe even his 20s when he commissioned this thing. He did some things that were not very popular. But maybe he was following a leading in his spirit. Now here's a here's a, a thing. He's following after Jesus. How many people followed after Jesus were looking forward to his death? Not a single one. Jesus taught them, I have to die. And they didn't want to hear it. And they weren't ready for it. They weren't expecting it. You have Joseph of Arimathea, who is believing that Jesus is the Messiah, who is in a group of people that that's a, 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 that's a bad view to have, a dangerous view to have. But he has continued to hold on to this view, and he believes that Jesus is going to step forward and become the king and usher in the kingdom. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He's looking for, here's the Messiah. I believe that this is Messiah. I believe this, is, this Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. And here he is. He's just died. Now, how many of that could throw you? But he still chooses this day, this day, when everything that he's been believing for has been altered and changed. He believes this day to make his stand. Could you do that? On a day that everything that you were believing in seemed to have been shattered, could you make the stand and say, I'm going to let people know that I believe in this Jesus? I'm going to give him my grave. I'm going to take care of his body. I'm going to step out and ask Pilate for it and put myself in the spotlight. People are going to know. He probably endured some criticism. I made this note for myself to make sure I told you this. Watch criticizing what you don't understand. Joseph made a tomb, not for himself, but for his Savior, who only used it for three days. But how many people around his day were criticizing him? Maybe some to his face. and Maybe some just over dinner while he wasn't there. You know that Joseph of Arimathea? You see what he's building over there? I thought he was a Pharisee. I thought he was supposed to be helping people. He's over there making these rich graves. Now, I believe it was Rick Renner who had shared this years ago. Years ago is when I got interested to study this, this particular one, find out some things about it. Rick shared something. I have not been able to substantiate this. 
that Joseph of Arimathea, being a relative of Jesus, that when the wise men came with all of their treasures, Mary and Joseph sought counsel and advice from him, and he actually helped to store a lot of the treasure. To keep it for Jesus for the ministry. Cannot substantiate that any other place. I don't know where Brother Rick went to get it, to find it, but I couldn't find it anywhere. But if you were Mary and Joseph, who had never really had any great amount of money, it didn't seem like they were poor, but it didn't seem like they were well off, and you suddenly came into a whole lot of money, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that all hit you in the same day, who would you want to ask what to do with it? Now think about back in those days, they don't have safety deposit boxes. They don't have safes you can put in your house. They don't have banks that you can uh, lock things up when, like we can lock things up with today in a bank. They had banks, they had people that were you know, bankers and, and stuff, but they didn't have any of the security that we had. What would you do? I guess you'd find somebody who's got money, and if they're a relative, that's even better, and ask them, what do you do to keep this stuff safe? So he either helped them, maybe helped store some of it, whatever it might be. But if Joseph was a relative, I could sure see they would be involving him But first off, don't follow the crowd. Make sure you follow Jesus. Secondly, don't embrace their wisdom. Follow God's. Don't criticize what you don't understand. Don't get on with the world. The world says, well, you don't need that. Don't be buying in what the world says. If Creflo Dollar is out there and he thinks he needs a bigger airplane, if God has told him to get a bigger airplane, then you just let Brother Creflo Dollar go out there and buy whatever airplane that he needs. If you don't think that he ought to do it, then you don't have to help support it. <laughs> just, but just let it go. Don't be out there on the other side of criticizing. Well, I don't think the brother so-and-so, pastor so-and-so, whatever needs they be getting this. Don't you mess with it. Because there are people who are criticizing him for building his tomb that he never got to use. And it was for Jesus. Could you imagine the resurrection story Without a stone. Without a stone to roll away. Without a tomb that was all by itself. Could you imagine that? I, I mean, I'm sure you can get one, but what a fantastic story it is with the, the large stone and it gets rolled away and the angels out there sitting on the stone. Here's the third thing. Handle surprises. As you believe God for things, you're going to be hit with some surprises. You're going to be hit with some things that you didn't see coming. They didn't see Jesus' death coming. Handle surprises. He was looking for the kingdom of God like everyone else. And all of a sudden, he got surprised. But you can handle the surprises. You can handle the things that are coming up. They don't have to throw you. I made this note, which Joseph are you now? Are you Joseph of Arimathea, who is hiding in the shadows as a disciple and found the courage to step up and be bold? Or are you Joseph of Glastonbury, who found his boldness, 
and took the gospel message to the land of Britain and over 40 years preached the gospel to them. Which Joseph will you, are you right now? If you say, well, I'm more of a Joseph of Arimathea, I'm still finding my courage. I'm still finding my boldness. That's okay. We'll get a vision of the next Joseph that's down the road that has that boldness and steps out and does things. Now, Joseph of Arimathea may not have had all the boldness, but he followed, it seems, the direction from God to build a tomb, to establish himself with riches, pursue a way of life that brought in lots of money because the people he needed to rub shoulders with respect people with money. He's not even on Pilate's radar if he doesn't have money and was not a Pharisee. But because he has the money and he's a Pharisee, he has the attention of Pilate. You think Peter could have knocked on Pilate's door and said, hey, can I have the body? Who are you? Stop bothering me, boy. Get out of here. But you see, Joseph of Arimathea had spent all those years doing what God said to do, even though people weren't real keen on him being rich, weren't real keen on him building tombs, and were not real keen on him being a Pharisee. But he did all those things, and because of it, on this day, he was in a place to make a difference. God does not always divulge the entire plan, but it says the good man's steps or ordered of the Lord. He's going to guide you, and he's going to tell you some steps, and those steps you don't always understand. I don't know why I'm taking this step. I don't know why I'm taking this step. I don't know why I'm doing this, but God is leading me to go in these directions. Sometimes down the road it becomes clearer. But even if you never come to an understanding of why all those things happen, you learn to trust the leading of God. Are you a Joseph of Arimathea? Are you a Joseph of Glastonbury? One who's in the mission and doing the things to have the gospel grow. Would you stand up with me? Father, we can become those things that you have told us. Those things that are buried down on the inside of us. There are desires because you put them there. And Joseph may not have understood all the reasons why he desired to pursue being a Pharisee. Why he desired to pursue being a merchant that brought him great wealth. But he pursued him. It seems like because you were leading him that way. And though he had a hard time finding that boldness on the days prior, on the day he was needed, he found it. And he rose up. And he said, I want the body. And he took that and he put it in a special place. Scripture was fulfilled because you saw way back all this unfolding. There are things going on in our life that we don't know what they're leading to. But we have the confidence that you have led us in the direction that we should go. 
and we are in the place that we should be. We don't have to follow the crowd. We follow Jesus. We may not always be bold enough to make all the stands we think we should. But just as you showed us with so many disciples in the Word, you don't write them off because they don't make every stand. I thank you. You have nothing but care and love for us. And you desire to take us from the place of being a Joseph of Arimathea who is afraid to make a stand. To be a Joseph who takes the gospel to the land of Britain and other places. Thank you that you see us as to what we will become. Give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we thank you for joining us here on this Good Friday. We've talked about it before, but y'all know Jesus didn't die on Friday. No matter what you do in the Mass, you can't get three days from Friday to Sunday, but it doesn't matter. The Bible never said he died on Friday. And we've gone over the double Sabbath and all the different things that uh, led to that. The Word of God is true. He, it's three days and three nights. And then on Sunday morning, he was risen. Thank God for a risen Savior. But he paid the price first. This weekend, as you see different ones in family, you may be called upon to be bold. You may be called upon. It's not quite time yet. But you listen. Follow the leading of your spirit. Don't not share for fear of the family for fear of the people that you work with as he did for fear of the Jews. Have a great rest of the weekend. We'll see you here on Sunday morning, 8.15 for the breakfast and 9.30 for the service.